So we're back in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Every word counts. Luke 18, verse 9, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, there are five things which just burst out of the page. Did you spot them? And the first is that the Lord Jesus Christ wants you to understand. Now, if we left Palestine where our Lord is teaching and we got in a plane and just went 800 miles west and slightly north, uh, we would come to Athens. And although Athens was losing ground at this time in history, it was still the place which was associated with the cleverest people in the world. So if you thought you were clever, or somebody else thought you were clever, to Athens is where you went. And they were actually very clever. By, sh by sheer logic, remember this is the first century, by sheer logic they had worked out the existence of the atom and already had a word for it, and were already talking of splitting the atom. That was clever, wasn't it? By sheer mathematics, and a little bit of physics, and a few other bits and pieces, they had actually weighed the planet on which we all live, and could tell you its weight. They were very clever people. And they were clever in medicine, and of course in drama, and in history, and in philosophy, and ethics, and all these other things that we don't understand. And they were very fussy about how things were taught. They didn't stand any nonsense, they took no prisoners. If you've got something worth saying, it must be said like this. And I've got a whole host of words down here which I don't understand, and they're all used by Aristotle. 
Ethos, pathos, logos, uh, that I understand, and most preachers would understand what that is. But they would say, um, before you speak, you've got to make sure that your persuasion is either A-technic or N-technic. Now, what do you think this is tonight? Yes, exactly. And the, before you engage in rhetoric, that's public speaking, you've got to be deliberate and forensic and epideictic. And then they would say, when you finish speaking, you should be able to identify the enthymemes and the lysis and the syllogisms and the epilogue and the rhythm and the narration, and I'm not going to tell you any more because that's not what this is about this evening. Now let's go back 800 miles and we come to Palestine in the first century and there is the one who not only made the atom, and remember each atom is a mini galaxy, but who sustains each atom by the word of his power so that if he stops exercising his power, the atoms disappear and he's teaching in Palestine. And here's the one who not only can weigh the world right down to the tiniest milligram, but actually who made it, and who has all knowledge, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and is eternal, pure, holy, Jesus, he spoke this parable. When the eternal Son of God came into the world, he told us stories. So whatever your background, whatever your language, whatever your education, whatever your interests, whatever your century, you could understand. And here he is talking about spiritual things, everlasting things, not passing things, but eternal things, and he's doing it by means of a, a story. The Lord Jesus Christ is very tender, very good, very kind, very generous-spirited, very thoughtful, wonderfully loving, and wants all of you who are serious about spiritual things to understand. So his stories are parables. But if you're not serious about spiritual things, if you're not really interested, You'll hear the story, but it won't make any impression really on you at all, because that's how parables work. The Lord Jesus Christ wants you to understand. That's the first thing we learn this evening. The second thing we learn is, verse, ni verse 9, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and despised others. The Lord Jesus Christ, this is the second point, wants you 
to understand. And me. So this week we've had Sir Gavin Williamson uh, accused of writing very actually nasty messages to the people who work for him. These are allegations and you've probably said in the secret of your heart, what sort of man is that? Meaning, of course, I'm not like that. And this week we've had Donald Trump saying some very spiteful things about the man who's had a resounding victory in the midterm election in Florida. And we've said to ourselves, have you? Where, where do you get, where do these people come from? Why is he like that? Meaning, I'm not like that. And this week, you've been down Church Street, maybe, and you've seen a couple, yeah, a man and a woman, arguing in the street. And the arguing has got more and more fierce. And the man being a scouser, his voice has got higher and higher and higher until he's speaking in a falsetto, because that's what scouse men do with respect um, when they get excited. And, and you... You thought to yourself, why, wh why do they go each other at each other like that? Why? Why? Meaning, we would never do that in our house. And this week, you've been to the supermarket and you've seen one of those famous toddlers. Have you met? You've seen these, haven't you? They lie on the floor and they've got this extreme, extraordinary skill of lying on the floor and stamping at the same time and yelling and rolling and, and the mother doesn't seem to be able to do anything with them and you thought to yourself, not again, meaning I would never allow that to happen. And not so long ago at a certain football club which shall remain nameless but plays in blue, there was a pitch invasion because they had been rescued just at the last moment from going down out of the premiership. I don't suppose any of you even know about this, do you? And you probably said to yourself, idiots, they've invaded the pitch and they're doing tens of thousands of pounds worth of damage to the pitch of the club which they say they love. And you said, I'm not an idiot. And Jesus says, this parable is to those of you who trust in yourselves that you're right. And despise others. So the Lord Jesus Christ wants you to understand and he wants you to understand. The third thing is, the Lord Jesus Christ wants you to understand that the way to hell is up. The way to hell is up. Look at verses 10 to 14. Now it's about a Pharisee. 
I don't know if any of you have got awkward neighbours, but if you had a Pharisee as a neighbour, you'd probably be actually quite pleased, to be honest. They were ordinary people. They didn't belong to any special class of elite people. They were just ordinary people who happened to belong to a particular branch of, of the Jewish religion. They were sincere. They were men and women, men of course, um, of integrity. They kept their word. They were honest. They paid their bills. They were punctual. They could be relied on. They worked hard. Um, they, they were good people and they knew it. And they believed in God, and the God they believed in was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the God of the Bible. And they prayed, as we know from this story, and they knew their Bibles, which we call the Old Testament, and they knew them very well. They knew especially the laws of the Old Testament, which they tried to keep. And this one is actually gone to the temple. So he's travelled from wherever he lives in what people call the Holy Land and he's gone to the temple to pray. But look at his prayer. And you find that in his prayer he, the Pharisee, is big. And God is small. Look at it. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself or in himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess and I was told in my teens I think maybe earlier that he was the five-eyed monster I I I I I and God meant gets one mention and I gets five mentions and in all his religion and Bible and prayers and honesty and trustworthiness the biggest thought in his mind is himself. And that is the mark of the unconverted. That's what unconverted people look like. Are you unconverted? Let's take yesterday. Yesterday was Saturday. What did you do yesterday? What time did you get up? What did you eat? Where did you go? Who did you meet? What did you think? What did you say? When did you go to bed? What was on your mind most of the day? Where were your thoughts? Where were your affections? What was it about yesterday that you most loved? And if the answer is me, 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 That's the mark of being unconverted. And Jesus tells us that this man went home unjustified. We'll come back to justified later, but in, in simple English it means he wasn't right with God. 
in all that purity and Bible knowledge and morality and goodness, he's got sins. And the sins are not forgiven because he hasn't been to have them forgiven. He probably doesn't even recognize that they're there. Or if he does, he sweeps the thought aside because his thought is, I'm okay. Um, there's a famous book called I'm okay, you're okay. Um, I think perhaps a Pharisee wrote it. I'm okay. I'm the one that's right. And his sins are still staring God in the face. His sins are unforgiven. And he's got nothing, 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 nothing on him that they can recommend him to God because it's all polluted and spoiled and made rotten by the, the sin which has infiltrated into every part of his being. And as I said to some boys and girls recently, little tiny boys and girls, how do you spell sin? And they all knew. S-I-N. And I asked them, what's the middle letter? And they all knew. And they all got the message. Because that's what sin is. Where I am big. And God is small. And that is hellish. And demonic. That's the way the devil thinks. And the devil has got into every part of our humanity and makes us think like that, that we are the most important people in the world and nothing matters more than I do. And it's the mark of someone not yet on the road to heaven. This parable is about a disaster. He's inflated himself. He's lifted himself up. He's taken the high, note the word, high moral ground. And the way to hell is up. So the Lord Jesus Christ wants you to understand. The Lord Jesus Christ wants you to understand. The Lord Jesus Christ wants you to understand that the way to hell is up. The Lord Jesus Christ wants you to understand that the way to heaven is down. And so we have the tax collector. He's mentioned in verse 10, but we're told what we need to know about him in verse 13. The tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in his eyes he is small. And in his eyes, he is dirty. And in his soul, in the very depths of his being, he is ashamed. And it says in English, 
God be merciful to me, a sinner. But it says in Greek, and this was written in Greek, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Your God. I'm the sinner. And he's not comparing himself with other people, trying to think to himself, are they better or worse, or am I better or worse? He's just thinking about God and the sinner, God and the sinner. And if he knows, and he knows in his soul, in the depths of his being, if he's ever going to be rescued and saved, it'll have to be because there's something in God, not something in himself. And maybe God will be merciful to me. And if you've watched, watched, ever watched these films where there's sword fights and all the rest, and eventually someone's on the ground and they've lost all their weapons and the person standing up has got a sword to their throat, there's only one thing to do now when the person's on the ground and he says, mercy, mercy. And he's not appealing to anything he's got. He can't do anything now. He's just appealing to the fact that hopefully in the person who's got the sword hanging over his head, there's at least a shred of kindness. And the wonderful truth of the gospel is that in God there isn't a shred of kindness. The Bible says God is love. God, be merciful to me. And what does he bring to God? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. He's appealing to something in God. But what? I mean, God being holy and God being the judge of all men and women and angels, he can't just wave away sin. Sin exists and God is just. But the Greek is God be propitious to me, a sinner. That's not a word we use every day, but it means this. I'm the sinner, you're God. I deserve to be punished. My life deserves to be laid down. I deserve it. But here's a life which has been laid down instead of me. Now, ladies and gentlemen and boys and girls, a bull or a goat or a lamb or a pigeon, they can't be substitutes for men and women. But they can be pictures, and that's the way the Bible paints it. So all through the Old Testament, there's sacrifices, 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 because people have recognized their sin and a life must be laid down. And oh, oh, if a life could be laid down instead of me, I could be rescued. And that's what the man is saying. You're God, I'm the sinner. You're God, be propitious to me on the basis of a sacrifice. Please accept me. And it's Jesus who's speaking. And before very long, he will be arrested. He'll go through a series of mock trials. 
he will be crucified just like the Old Testament scriptures said a thousand years before and he will do that not because he has any reason to die because he's the eternal son of God but he who cannot die will die for those who deserve to die and my sins are infinite but here's an infinite person dying in my place and I've offended an eternal God but here's an eternal person being my substitute and that's why the Bible from the th third chapter to the last chapter is all about the cross and that's why the cross is the symbol of Christianity and that's why we constantly preach the cross and that's why in your dying moments if there's any hope for you at all it will have to be in the cross of Christ because there's no other safe way of going into eternity the glorious thing about the cross is that all the judgment which would fall on me fell upon the innocent son of God who loved me and gave himself for me but it's better than that this isn't in the text but I'm going to preach it anyway the glory of the gospel listen carefully is double imputation my sins all of them put to his account and he pays the price that's imputation what belongs to me is put to his account. His wonderful life, his glorious, pure, spotless, righteous, extraordinary life, that righteousness which is his, which was displayed on the earth where he never gave in to the slightest temptation and was as pure as a man as he, as he was before he ever became a man. That righteousness which belongs to him is put to my account so the whole gospel is actually a mysterious exchange my sins to his account his righteousness to my account so we call it imputation but the glory of it all is double imputation and here's a person who is filled with filth and shame who brings nothing who talks to God and recognizes that there's no hope for him unless God is merciful and relies upon the sacrifice which God has provided for his rescue for his salvation for his justification Justification, of course, means all my sins are forgiven and God's righteousness in Christ is imputed to me and put to my account. And here's a person who is filled with sin but who's safe in heaven because everything on which he relies is outside himself. 
It's all in Christ. But he's come through the door, which is the lowest place. So the Lord Jesus Christ wants you to understand. He wants you to understand. He wants you to understand that the, the way to hell is up. All the world's religions, even a lot of what goes on in the name of Christ, teaches that's the way. You earn your way up. No, says Jesus. No, says Jesus. Jesus wants you to understand that the way to heaven is down. You go down, down, down to God. You never go to God any other way. You go down. So we'll close with number five. The Lord Jesus Christ wants you to understand that this is his perpetual promise. This is Christ's promise to you. Here it is, verse 14. Everyone who exalts himself will be abased. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus, being in the very essence God, became man, became a servant, died on the cross. The cross is so horrible that the Roman citizens never spoke about it. There's no lower place to go. And that means that if you don't take the lowest place, you're actually trampling underfoot Jesus Christ. All spiritual progress, all spiritual development, all spiritual growth, all genuine spiritual experience is down. Now somebody's going to say, well, I don't quite understand because early in the Bible there's, there's Jacob and he has this wonderful dream and there's a ladder. And there's the angels going up from where he is and coming down to where he is and there's God and Jacob meets God at the top of a ladder. But you've not been reading the text, have you? That was a dream. Jacob is on the ground. He's got no money, no home, no prospects, no friends. No reputation, because he's just trashed it all by his lying and cheating. He has got nothing. And he's lying on the wet earth, completely destitute, with nothing at all, and that's where God meets him. Right in the middle of your Bible, or just past halfway, you come to Isaiah. Listen to this text. It's quite an extraordinary text. It, it takes you by surprise. Thus says the high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity, whose name is 
holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with... Now, you'd expect the text to say, I dwell in the high and holy place with the people who are high and holy. But the text doesn't say that. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite, that means owning up to their sin, and humble spirit. And the door to that is there. That's what scripture teaches. Constantly, again and again. Well, what about Paul, somebody says? Paul was caught up, wasn't he? Yes. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, he was caught up to the third heaven. And he keeps telling us whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Now, what's the third heaven? Well, in Jewish, the Jewish thinking, it goes like this. The first heaven is the sun, the moon, the stars, the Milky Way, and the galaxies. The second heaven is the angels, the principalities, the thrones, the dominions, the cherubim, the seraphim, and the archangel. And the third heaven is where only God is. And Paul, whether it's in the body or out of the body, tells us that he was caught up to the third heaven and there he heard things which he's not allowed to utter. No human may utter them. And then he exited it. He, he, he came through the exit door from the third heaven, the highest place that is possible to be. And the exit door was that he was actually weaker and more ill and more feeble than he had ever been before. In fact, the illness or deformity or condition which he received was actually a messenger of Satan, says the scripture. But the Bible's really surprising, isn't it? And the exit door, like the entry door to the third heaven, is there. So when Paul has the highest experience that it's possible to have, the highest experience that any person has ever had in the whole history of the world, he's lower than he ever was before. Wherever there is godliness, there is lowliness. And wherever there isn't lowliness, there isn't godliness. And this has massive implications. So most of you here are members of a church, members of this church. Is there, is there someone in the church you're avoiding? Take the lowest place and Jesus will meet you there. 
Go to the person you're avoiding. Who is it? Go to the person you're avoiding and say something like this. Brother, sister, you're loved with the same love as I'm loved. And you're bought with the same blood as I'm bought with. And I've been avoiding you. And that's wrong. And I'm sorry. And now, you will not only have met Jesus in a new way, you will have met your brother or your sister in a way that you never met them before. Or there might be someone in the church and in all conscience, you can't agree with them on something. Just take the lowest place. This is what the gospel calls us to do. Go to that person and say, brother, uh, sister, in, in all conscience, on this particular point, I can't agree with you. But I've been, I've been thinking about you as if you were less valuable to the Lord than I am. And that's wrong. And I'm sorry. And you'll find in that experience the Lord Jesus Christ will meet you and you will meet your brother and your sister in a way and in a dimension and with a meaningfulness that you've never known before. And you may think to yourself, this, somebody in this church that has far too much to say. So take the lowest place. Jesus will meet you there. That's what this whole passage is about. That's where God meets people. Go to the person and say, brother, sister, I've been having resentful thoughts about you and I've been very unforgiving in my attitude. And it's wrong. And I'm sorry. And now you will not only have met the Lord in a new way, you will have met that Christian deeply for the very first time. We must never wait for people to come to us. All real meetings take place in the lowest place. When you meet God, you meet him there, confessing your sins, your unloveliness, your emptiness, your inability, your rebellion, your spite, and everything else which comes to you. That's where you meet God. You meet him in Christ who came into the world to save sinners. We used to sing years ago, he did not come to judge the world. He did not come to blame. He did not only come to seek, it was to save he came. And when we call him Saviour, and when we call him Saviour, and when we call him Saviour, we call him by his name. You meet God in the lowest place, and you meet the children of God in the lowest place. And you meet all the other men and women and boys and girls who are made in the image of God. in the lowest place. And the promise remains for time and for eternity. Everyone who exalts himself 
will be abased. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. <laughs>